John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm pretty sure you've heard of it, but if you'd turn there with me. It has been called the gospel in miniature. It's been called the greatest sentence in the history of human communication. It's been called the gospel in a nutshell. I'd just like for us to look at it for a few minutes. What a glory it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's interesting as I hear Brother Beale's story. If I got it right, bus kid called to preach when he was 17 from a non-Christian home. I'm a bus kid called to preach when I was 17 from a non-Christian home. He, he ends up in a Bible college being burdened by chan, for the chance to train the next generation of preachers. I'm in a Bible college burdened about training the next generation of preachers. Uh, I sure am glad there were folks that believed in the must ministry a few decades back. There's not much of it now. I understand why. It is a tremendous challenge and becomes more challenging all the time. But I sure have met a lot of preachers who are reached as bus kids. They're in the ministry today. And as a result of their having been reached, of our having been reached, the work of God is getting done in areas today. I will tell you it is crystal clear as you look around the country, we don't have near as many Bible colleges as we used to. Not near as many. They've been dropping like flies over the last few years. Many of them are much smaller. Many of the ones that still exist train people for a profession, not a ministry. I say you have to do that to recruit young people today. Since you can't get young people ministry oriented today, I do not accept or believe that. We had better see to the next generation of preachers. Because in very short order, I mean within just a few years, you are going to see, you're already starting to see it. But you're going to see an incredible shortage of missionaries, an incredible shortage of youth pastors, an incredible shortage of pastors. Because we're not training anywhere near the same number of young people for this kind of ministry that we used to. And this is serious. It's a very basic verse we're looking at tonight, but with the theme of standing in the gap. And it is interesting how God works things together. I have a book over on the table that my pastor and I co-wrote. He wrote eight chapters. I wrote eight chapters. People compliment us all the time on how it all flows together. I know the story behind that. My thing about that is, Pastor Bloom was talking about the message. Just He called me. He says, Brother Stringer. He said, you know, at our annual conference a year ago, he said, we made a commitment to have this book out on this subject. And he said, it really hasn't been addressed. And he said, I'm really sorry it hasn't been, but said a promise was made by my father. And he said, I'm about to throw myself into this. But he said, if we're going to do this and have it in time for the conference, we have 30 days to get it to the type center. He said, I'm not ordering you to do this. But he said, I'm going to tackle this, which means I have to get eight chapters done in the next 30 days. Is there a chance you'd be willing to tackle it, do eight chapters in the next 30 days? He said, sir, with all due respect, that's insane. 
I've written books before. You can't do it this way. I said, that would just be crazy. He said, well, that's fine. He said, you don't have to do this. I said, thank you. And, and then God began to work on my heart about it all night. I called him the next day and said, Pastor, when I was young, preacher, I used to do crazy things all the time. I haven't done anything crazy in years, maybe even decades. But I said, let's just go have fun the next month and do this. And so we did. You want to know how well it was transitioned together? I never saw one word that he wrote before it went to the typesetter. And he had had one day with my work before it went to the typesetter. I mean, we were just talking about the same things and it flowed together without us repeating each other. It's just amazing when God gets into something. It is. John 3.16 begins this way. For God. Do you understood? This is not a plan of salvation that human beings would ever have come up with or ever designed. You study the religions of the world. Some years ago I was teaching cults at a Bible college and uh, teaching modern cults. And I said, you know, it'd be great to do this. And, and uh, I want to give the students a list of all the cults in the United States. Boy, was that a silly project. I got to over a thousand and had not scratched the surface, and I just quit. And you know what they all have in common? They disagree about who to worship. They disagree about this and that and the other, but they all have this in common. They believe you get to heaven through your good works. Every time man devises a plan of salvation, it is works. They don't always agree on what works. You know, I don't know what the big difference is. Usually over where you send the check. But to always devise a plan of salvation about works. Not this one. This didn't come from men. Men couldn't have devised it. Men have trouble seeing it. Men have trouble understanding it. This plan of salvation came from God. And says, he's so... It's a comparison. We're talking about love. We're talking about how deep his love was. We're talking about what his love cost. He so loved that in order to satisfy his holy nature, he is a holy God and his holiness will not tolerate sin. He is a just God and his justice demands that sin be paid for. But he created man to fellowship with him and our sin contradicts his holiness and his justice. And on paper, it makes fellowship with God impossible. But this didn't catch God by surprise. From before the foundation of the world, God had a plan whereby he would provide the path to salvation because God the Son would come to this earth, live a sinless, perfect, holy life, go to the cross of Calvary, and on the cross, he would pay the penalty and the justice of God would be satisfied. On the cross, he would shed his blood and his blood could be applied to our sin. And 
It's much more than covering, but because we don't have a good way to say it, we use the word covering. His blood so covers our sin that it no longer creates a barrier between us and God. What a story. He loved us that much. What The God of creation. The God of the universe. The God who, whom is over all things, knows all things, can do all things. Was so mindful of you and I. And loved us so much. The, the word love, the Greek word behind love, there's an interesting word. It did not exist in the, in the Greek language before the New Testament. There are a number of words God created as he gave the scriptures because words exist when men, thinking about a concept, attach a sound to the concept. But men couldn't come up with this concept, so they'd never attached a sound to it. The word agape refers to emotion. Love produced by God. None of the languages of men had that concept. And when you come to places in the Bible where God wants to communicate something and men had never come across it, he creates a word or he takes a word and gives it a new meaning. And God gave us a new word. God so loved. And look at who he loved. The world. Yes, I know. There's a lot of Christian theologians that don't accept that idea. They don't believe Christ died for all men. It's not their theology. They call themselves Calvinists. Trust me, I have spent lots of time with them over the years. And and they call themselves Calvinists. And uh, I, I find it interesting talking to them. Most of them have never read John Calvin. He wrote 2,000 pages of a theology when he was 26 and he'd been saved for two years. He was trained as a Catholic priest. He was trained as a lawyer and had not one day of sound Bible training in his life. The Reformation needed a comprehensive doctrinal book, so they asked him to do it. He was a brilliant man, even though he had zero training in any of this. And at age 26, he produced 2,000 pages that he was completely untrained to deal with. And along the way, he reasoned that if God was God, if God was sovereign, he must decide who goes to heaven and who doesn't, based not on any qualifications for the choice, but based upon his own sovereign whim. That is true, God decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, but he decides on the basis that he tells us he decides. He puts his stamp on those that put their faith and trust in what Christ the Son did on the cross. And he provided this for the whole world. I was talking to a young lady in Chicago one time. She'd come to our church. She was a Muslim. She was from Bosnia. And and, uh, when she first came to our church, she didn't want to meet anybody. She made a mistake coming in right before we all went out and shook hands with one another. All she knew was the mosque. And uh, she immediately met about 200 people. She, and people said, let us introduce you to the pastor. She said, oh, no, no, I don't want to meet the pastor. I don't want to know the pastor. And uh, I went up to introduce myself. She said, please be patient with me. So, okay, tell us what we can do to help you. She came to church for eight weeks. After eight weeks, she said, I'd like to sit down and talk with you now. She said, but I have to tell you something. She said, I'm a Muslim. I pastored in Chicago surrounded by Muslim Hindus and Buddhists. 
and I heard that phrase over and over again, they would say, I have to tell you, I'm a fill in the blank. Because they always wanted to see what your reaction would be. I always had people asking me what, how I would react. I developed an automatic answer to that. So, really? You're a Muslim or Buddhist. Or so you're a Muslim? That's really interesting. I don't know much about Islam. But I know one thing about every single Muslim that walks the face of the earth. And then I would stop. Never did this fail one time. They would then ask me a question. What's the one thing you know about every Muslim? That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for you. Because I don't want to talk about Muhammad or Islam. I want to talk about Jesus and what he did. And I went through this with her, and she'd been taught to think this way in, in terms of ethnic categories. They're Christians, they're Muslims, they're Jews, etc. And I explained to her the death of Christ and all that. She says, well, how do I know that Christ didn't just die for the Christians? And I took her to John three sixteen. and I read it to her. I was about to take her to a second verse. There are many. I'm about to take her to a second verse. She said, no, that's okay. If God said it one time, that's good. Better than a lot of the professors in some of our colleges, I might say, at that point. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave. Glory to God. He gave his son as a gift that salvation might be given as a gift. That is the message this whole world needs. When you're filling in the gap, you're helping make this message possible to go to somebody. It's the message everybody needs. I was in India one time and I was flying from one city in India to another and I'm sitting next to an Indian man. I'm trying to say a word to him about the Lord. There's another Indian man on the other side and, and the guy got angry and he said, how dare you try and, and impose white man's religion on me? He said, I don't care what you white men believe. And he turns to the Indian fellow next to him and says, can, can you imagine that? Did you hear that? He was trying to talk to me about white man's religion. <laughs> Turned out the Indian fellow on the other side of him. I'd never met him before. I didn't know him. But in the providence of God, the Indian fellow sitting on the other side of him was a Baptist preacher. <laughs> Later, he would tell me, he said, while you were witnessing to him, I prayed for you. And he said, when that came to an end, he started witnessing to him. So I was praying for him while he was witnessing to him. And he told him, this doesn't have anything to do with white men. This doesn't have anything to do with America. This doesn't have anything to do with this. This is just a simple truth. It's the most glorious truth that salvation is available to everyone because Christ died for everyone. He said Christianity is the leveling religion of the whole world. Because it is for everyone. Because the penalty for our sin was paid for for everyone. He led that fellow to Christ. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever. Uh, again, I realize it's a very uncomfortable word for the Calvinist crowd. They are quick to say that whosoever does not mean whosoever. That whosoever means some. What a games we play with the human language. Again, I will tell you, 10-year-old bus kids aren't Calvinists. You have to go to a seminary or Bible college to become a Calvinist. 
their seminary professors were Calvinists. Because if you tell a 10-year-old bus kid whosoever, you want to know what the 10-year-old bus kid thinks that means? You want to know what whosoever is symbolic of? Whosoever? You want to know what whosoever? I said, it's old English. People can't understand. I've never found a bus kid who couldn't understand it. Whosoever? They would all get it. They got to get in a classroom somewhere where somebody can tell them that whosoever means some. Because until then, they'll never come up with that. That whosoever, glory to God, believeth. So it means baptism. That means sincerity. It means faithfulness. It means continuing on. It means church membership. It means giving. You know what the Lord said? Believeth. I was in a debate one time with the Church of Christ preacher. He said, well, he said, now when the Bible means, says faith, it means faithfulness. He said, you can't tell me that you can go to heaven if you don't go to church faithfully. I said, I have a question. How many times a week do you have to go to be faithful? One, two, three, four. Say, if you're going to church in order to go to heaven and you got to go four times a week, I'm going to find somewhere to go to another service because I'm not going to hell over one night a week. On the other hand, if the only reason going to church is to go to heaven and you only have to go once a week, I might take up football on Sundays. I wouldn't now, but that was back then. I'm going to tell you the issue is putting our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. What a plan of salvation. Men would never have designed this. But it's not just faith in general or faith in faith. Whoever believeth in him. You have any question about the him? Whosoever believeth in him, he was the only begotten son. Uh, there's a rush today, and it's a horrible thing. It's transformative. It doesn't create not weak Christianity. It creates non-Christianity by folks who want to be popular and acceptable and relevant to the culture. And they say it just sounds so harsh to a lost world to say all kinds of things, to say homosexuality is a sin, or to say women can't be preachers, or, or to say Christ is the only way to heaven. And they say if we want to reach people, we've got to learn how to modify that. Except modifying it doesn't do any good. It's in him. You don't believe until you come to grips with who Jesus is and you put your faith and trust in him. Nobody gets saved by putting faith and trust in themselves. And when you lose the message about Christ, you have not just weakened Christianity, you have completely, totally destroyed it. The quote-unquote relevant Christianity, relevant Christianity, that's being popularized by so many today, including the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, is not Christianity at all. They, in my opinion, that have gone from a weak Christianity to a non-Christian position. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. 
perish comes from the Greek word for being lost. We should not be lost forever. I, I, I'm sure you don't like being lost. I don't like being lost. A lot of folks don't know Chicago, had, downtown Chicago, has an underground uh, road system. Very rarely used. I'd, I've only been on it twice when I passed it in Chicago. I don't like it. Uh, because it's dark. Your GPS doesn't work. It's dark down there. Don't recognize any of the street names. I have no idea where I'm going. I'd never been down there by myself, but I was at a meeting in Chicago a few weeks ago. And as I came out of the meeting, Black Lives Matter was trying to take control of the street and they were stopping all the cars demanding money. And I did not really want to have that discussion with them. And there was an entryway down into what's called Lower Wacker, the system of roads under the city. So I went down there, and that got me out of that. And I didn't know the GPS didn't work. I just work. I just figured I'd stop, do my GPS, and uh, doesn't work down there. Glory, I'm driving along. It's dark. I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea what I'm doing. And there are exits that will take you up, but I have no idea where I'm going if I take this one or that one or the next one. I was lost for about half hour. I didn't like being lost. I like to plan things out, know exactly where I'm going and what I'm doing. But we're not talking about being lost for half an hour in less than perfect conditions. Can you imagine the thought of folks in the torments of hell? I preached a sermon on that one time. Didn't know it. There was a lady visiting in the church for the first time. She had moved in the neighborhood because we were next door to an AA center. And she was haunted by dreams of hell. She came in church, wandered in church on Sunday morning, and I preached on the torments of hell. She came running forward and, and pleading that we would tell her how she could miss hell. And I sure am glad we could. Amen. Got saved, became a very faithful, good member in church, still is a good member there. Should not perish. But have, are you all ready? Everlasting life. Y'all got any idea what everlasting is symbolic of? Honest, a lot of theologians don't know. <clears throat> They'd tell you quickly, everlasting life means maybe for a while. You want to know what everlasting is symbolic of? Lasting forever. Again, I can tell you. <coughs> Bus kids get that. <coughs> Some preachers don't. You all ready? I'm telling you this for two reasons. <coughs> Here's the first one. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You ought to put your faith and trust in the one who died for you this very evening. <coughs> not to put it off for a moment. <coughs> not to put it off slightly. Not to put it off in the least. I was asked to visit a man one time in the hospital in Chicago. Drug addict, all messed up. Body devastated. Went to see him. He strapped up to all kinds of machines. He wasn't conscious been my practice over the years, you never know what a person really knows about what's going on around them, to go through the gospel in settings like that. <coughs> not knowing whether the person understands or not. 
went through the gospel. Next day I got a call. They said he's awake. I went back. I said, sir, could I talk to you about how you can go to heaven when you die? And he said, sure. And he, he said, look at me. Can you imagine how foolish I would be to say no? He said, I'm not going to be here very long. I went through the gospel with him. He said, that's what you said last night. He said, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? He said, what kind of fool would I be to say no? He got saved, died two days later. I'm just telling you, it's foolish to say no to salvation. If you have questions or thoughts or insecurities about salvation. I was pastoring in Chicago. We had a Christian school. There was a young lady in the Christian school. Her family did not like me. They were not in favor of calling me to the church there. And I knew that. She had done nothing wrong or not been any problem. But I just got burdened for her soul. And I thought, man, if I talked to her about her soul, she'd been in the church her entire life, probably been saved for years and years. That family's just going to be more upset with me. But I was so burdened about it, I couldn't help it. And I asked her, did you come off us for a minute sit down? I said, look, I don't want to make you mad. I really don't. I don't want to upset you. But I just, I have been so burdened about your salvation. And I wanted to talk to you about when you got saved. She said, I understand why you've been burdened about it. She said, I'm not saved. She said, I've been in this church my entire life. She was a senior in high school. She said, I have been in the Christian school since kindergarten. Everybody just thinks I'm saved. We talked, we prayed together and she trusted Christ as her Savior. Without telling her family, ahead of time, I baptized her the next Sunday morning. I got along wonderfully with those people after that. I'm just telling you, even if you're here in the Christian school, being in a Christian school does not save you. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you ought not to leave tonight without trusting Christ. I tell you for a second reason. There's a world that desperately needs somebody to tell them this. When you're standing in the gap in your local church, oh, glory to God, every one of you ought to be doing that some way, somewhere. What you're doing is expanding the message of your church, having a chance to tell people this glorious thing that Jesus died for you. Close with this. There's a Bible scholar 100 years ago, so named Robert Dick Wilson, very influential man. He mastered a lot of languages. People have called him the Indiana Jones of the Bible college movement. He would literally teach nine months out of the year. And in the summer, he would go to the Orient and he hunted up rare manuscripts. He he cataloged the languages. He translated them. He had a lot of adventures in the course of that and won a lot of awards, even in secular society, because of his discoveries. And then he'd come back and he'd teach another year. In summer, he'd go back to the Orient. He was retiring. Having a banquet to honor him. His health didn't let him do all the kind of things he'd done for so many years anymore. And they got up and they were listing all these things he had done, the discoveries he had made, the awards he had won. And they asked him to come to the podium and tell them what he thought was the most important discovery he had ever made. This distinguished scholar walked up to the podium looked at the crowd, and in answer to that question, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so.
little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong and went and sat down. There's no greater discovery in humanity, in history, anywhere for anybody than this. Jesus provided for your salvation. Don't miss it. And don't miss the part you're supposed to play in getting that message to the whole world. God bless you.